Hey everybody, welcome to another episode, the 31st episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. I'm your host, Aaron Watson. Today's episode is really cool. It was recorded on September 30th, 2015 in the Epicast Studios. September 30th is significant because it is International Podcasting Day. So there were people all over the world recording podcasts, just continuing to move forward the podcast revolution. So that was really cool. I want to thank everyone out there for listening and being a part of that movement. And also thankful to Buzzy and the other folks at Epicast who helped make the event possible, helped with recording, allowed me to borrow their equipment, all that good stuff. The episode was live streamed. It is available on the Epicast YouTube channel. Additionally, there were some other podcasts that were recorded that day. So you can check out the Epicast network for those episodes. But my episode was really cool. I learned a lot. I interviewed Alan Charnis, a former PwC consultant who retired at 35. Now, a lot of people who retire in their 20s or 30s are sold out of a startup that they founded or had some big inheritance or something crazy happened to them. And Alan didn't follow that storyline. He went back to school, got a graduate degree, worked really, really hard, created a financial model for his entire life and figured out what living standard he'd have to be at, how much he'd have to save and what rate of return he'd need to retire at 35. It required an incredible amount of diligence, sacrifice, and foresight. But as he lays out over the next 40 minutes, it's something that just about anybody can do. If you save a lot, if you have a sound investment strategy, you too can retire earlier than you were probably expecting. I learned a lot from him. I know you will too. I'm not going to go on any further. Without further ado, today's guest, Alan Charnas. reason I wanted to have today's guest, Alan Charnas, on the program is he was able to retire at age 35. And he did this without selling out of a company for millions of dollars. He didn't come up with some crazy invention, the next best thing since sliced bread. He worked a nine to five or maybe a little, probably a little more than a nine to five job and saved diligently and had a system in place. Before I we get into how he did that, this is not any sort of formal recommendation for investment advice or anything like that. This is one guy's story of how he did it. We'll have links to connect, show notes, all that good stuff at the end. But uh, without further ado, Alan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks, Aaron. Uh, appreciate being here, and uh, thank you for inviting me on to the special podcast day edition of your show. We're coming live from the Epicast Network. That's the center of podcasting in Pittsburgh. But uh, before, there's a lot to unpack as far as how you were able to retire at age 35. I want to really start with where did you get the idea to retire at 35 and what made you really believe that it was possible? Uh, so I think early on, uh, my family did a pretty good job of educating me a little bit on kind of finance, on the power of compound interest, just the basics of if you have a 
uh, a CD way back in the 80s when interest rates were around 8%, 10%. My parents once gave me a, a, a small amount of money as a CD, and every year I got a little bit of it, kind of like when you get a savings bond. And, and it kind of helped me recognize early on about the importance of money saved today turns into a lot more tomorrow. If you're talking 10% interest, which I know you don't find CDs returning that anymore, but the stock market averages that over the long haul. Uh, for every dollar you save today can turn into two with seven years down the road, four or 14 years down the road. And so you know that over time, being diligent on that front kind of gets you pretty far. So, so I kind of had a little bit of that background understanding. And what happened to me was in my first job, I'd finished college, knocked out my debt, was looking at going back and doing an MBA part-time or going back full-time. And, and those sort of decisions are kind of um, tough in that if you go back full-time, you're making a pretty big sacrifice in that you're giving up your income for one year, two years, depending on the program. You're paying a lot in tuition. And coming out, the idea is you come out and you probably can get a job that pays enough extra. So I, I wanted to quantify it. So I put together a little spreadsheet, and I had just been working locally, a uh, wonderful company, Giant Eagle, just at their corporate headquarters, just doing some analytics work for them. And, and I love the environment. I love the people. I really like them. But I knew probably long-term it would make, make a bit more sense to add a couple extra credentials for me. And so when I was looking at making that decision, I cracked open Microsoft Excel, and I put down, okay, uh, here's how much I could be giving up in income if I go away full-time to a better program, or if I, I, I stay locally and I go part-time uh, just to CMU, or not just to CMU, it's a great MBA program, but um, go locally and uh, maybe put myself under a little bit more stress because I'd be going to school, I'd be working full-time. But uh, so, so I put together the spreadsheet, and when I put it together to figure out, okay, do I go back full-time or part-time, one of the things that I did was I looked at, okay, here's how much money I'll have saved uh, after two years, after four years, after six years, eight years, ten years. And as I kind of filled those formulas down, all of a sudden I noticed the number was getting really big. If I continued to spend like I had been spending, because when you come out of college and you get your first job, you usually don't blow it all, and you're used to hanging out with friends. And, and you know that making what makes you happy isn't necessarily spending a lot of money. It's having a cool network of friends to spend time with and doing interesting things on the side. And, and so when I just kind of kept, I noticed when I kept my spending low, I didn't ramp it up, and I started saving the remainder and putting it in the market and getting a market return. I noticed the number probably around the time I was around 35, 36, 37, 38 was starting to get pretty darn large. And when I looked at it and I noticed how big it was getting, I started realizing, wait, that's probably enough to retire on. Why don't I give that a shot? <laughs> so uh, I ended up uh, going, doing the MBA part-time and um, uh, just kind of had the plan. And so by having the plan, all of a sudden it, it, it became this fe feasible light way off in the distance. But it definitely required a little bit of discipline, and, and, and I, I don't want to kind of spoil your remaining questions, but th that's where the idea initially came. And I think also when I started looking at job opportunities as I was finishing up the MBA, being at staying with my company, going elsewhere, taking on a higher stress, higher upside job, or taking on more of an interesting corporate marketing job, all of a sudden it kind of helped me make those decisions because I had this plan that I knew if I stuck to, I knew if I kind of kept on working hard, I knew if I, I went after a little bit more income, could get me there a little bit earlier or later. So it just took getting something down on paper. Gotcha. Have you always been someone who was kind of creating plans for all facets of your life, be it your health, your physical wellness, your finances, just in general? And also, how consistent were you able to execute the plans as opposed to just creating a plan and then it kind of going haywire? So 
I, I think when I first came out of college, I, I'm, I'm probably not that much more disciplined than the average person. Um, it was just one of those. I, I, in fact, I, I'd say I probably was a little less structured than a lot of people. I was just focused on my job, was focused on doing something interesting, focused on hanging out with friends. I didn't have this sort of gung-ho, I want to get 100 things accomplished in one day mentality at first. But, but I think as I put together that initial spreadsheet and tweaked it and improved it over time, and I think when I did the MBA, I may have updated it to, instead of track things by year, maybe track things by month, and then I added a little bit more functionality to the spreadsheet with, here's a spending budget, and I saw how well that worked. I think that kind of changed my mindset into becoming a little bit more disciplined, a little bit better at planning. And I think more than anything, when you start experiencing a little bit of stress in your job, if you have that plan to kind of get to that light at the end of the tunnel and you can see it and you see that, yeah, initially in the first year I said I was going to save this much, I did. I was going to get this much return, I did. And um, the outcome was this. And, 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 and that number keeps on getting bigger and bigger and bigger and you see that it works. That just reinforces you to kind of stay on top of plans. And then uh, the other thing is right after I finished my MBA, I switched careers. And as you mentioned, uh, worked as a consultant, initially for a smaller firm uh, that was bought by uh, Pricewaterhouse. But uh, when I worked for them, uh, a lot of the work that I did was project management. And in those sorts of positions, your plan is, is your life. Um, I was planning large mergers and planning kind of how to put companies together. And in those situations, you really live and die by your project plan. So there, that really got me into the mentality of listing out the hundreds of steps, figuring out which ones were missing, and then tracking to it, tracking progress, tracking financials, tracking financial plans, and, and all those sort of things that I kind of initially did for my own life, translated into good planning skills for my work life. And then from there, uh, I think that made me a little bit more of a plan-oriented guy. But it's not a, it's not a hard process, uh, retiring, figuring out how much to save, saving it, and then investing it right really isn't that tricky. It's, it's not something that requires you to do much as long as you make it automatic. Gotcha. I want to break down those three parts you just mentioned, uh, ramping up income, saving in a disciplined, consistent way, and then also having the right investment strategy. Um, so to start with, so we kind of addressed ramping up your income. You went got the MBA, got more credentials, increased your perceived value to potential employers. Yep. Uh, beyond that, your savings is kind of directly correlated to your ability to stave off lifestyle inflation. So Absolutely. the common trope is someone gets a raise, someone gets a bonus, someone gets a promotion and someone gets a BMW. <laughs> and yeah, they get a new car, they, you know, start eating out more, they have they associate that with more luxuries and you were able to kind of hold off on that. How were you able to do that? So there are two, two key elements. One is you force the savings. So if you don't see it and it goes straight from your paycheck into your brokerage account, into your 401k, into your IRA, into your, all of your automated savings mechanisms, then you, you don't think about it. And so for me, I was very careful every year whenever I got my bonus, whenever I got my salary increase, I, I set up an automatic transfer from my bank account. And it was easy as logging in once a year uh, to do this and just changing the amount that I transferred. Um, I did a budget each year just to figure out, okay, roughly I could probably spend this much. Um, I wasn't super strict, uh, but at the same time, I, I realized early on that you don't need to spend a lot of money to be happy. It, it's not as if, I, and there's a lot of great research out there on happiness and income showing that 
if you spend your money on things, it's not material possessions, it's not that nice new watch, it's not the expensive car that makes you happy, it's experiences. So I, I was careful with my spending, but I, I did every once in a while splurge on, so when the Steelers made it to the Super Bowl in 2000, I guess it was 2008, 2009 in Tampa, I flew down for that game, went to the game, loved it. Uh, but that was my big splurge for the year, but otherwise I was still living a couple steps above a college student, but nowhere near where my colleagues were living. And, and so by forcing the savings, that made it pretty easy. And, and making sure that I was saving right was, um, it, it really wasn't that tricky. But at the same time, I, I wasn't, um, I was in a job that paid pretty well. I probably was living on a little bit more than what I was living on as a student just because I had my own place. I think the other thing that made savings easy, though, was I took on a job after my MBA that was kind of a 70, 80 hour a week job. And I think for those of you who come out of MBA programs, um, there are a couple different careers that people look at, but out of a lot of top tier programs, the, the big, dollar sign careers that people put out there and go for are usually management consulting and investment banking. And there are careers where um, the upside can be massive, but also the attrition rate's pretty massive. So the average life uh, lifespan at a consulting firm is about two years. The average lifespan within investment banking is about two to three years as well, uh, as they do a lot of trimming. And, and not to say people don't move on to, to good careers after that, but it, it is a very, very time-consuming job if you want to do it right. And so um, if you need to put in 70, 80 hour weeks at your job and you're on the road and you're traveling and all of your weekly expenses are covered via budget, uh, all of a sudden you get home for the weekend and you don't have a lot of time to spend money. <laughs> and for me, the priority was always spending time with friends. So it wasn't an issue of, um, and, and a lot of my friends were, were fascinating folks. They were graduate students, uh, young professionals, artists. I had my weekly poker game with a lot of them. It was all low stakes. And so all of a sudden, there wasn't a lot of pressure for my social group to spend money. And my career really didn't let me spend <laughs> much money just because it had me so busy. Absolutely. The big three takeaways that I'm taking from that are, number one, if you're staying busy, there's less time to spend money. Number two, your social circle, who you associate with. If you're associating with people who have to spend a lot of money to have a good time, that's going to be a drain on your bank account no matter how you swing it if you're spending time with them. And then the other thing that was really interesting is just kind of also allowing yourself to not have like a cheat day, but like a, you did still yeah. have your big expenses, but it wasn't consistent across the board. It's kind of like if you're on a diet, but you have a cheat day, yeah. it's okay. You had a cheat day and then you get back to living a disciplined life and it, you, you still reap the benefits, but you don't quite have the same craving that you might have otherwise. Absolutely. And, and, and I had kind of my travel budget. I had my, here's the few toys and indulgences I can take, but they were, they were small enough that they weren't breaking the bank and they weren't becoming everyday things. Gotcha. As far as MBA programs in general, you mentioned that potentially going elsewhere for your MBA uh, or staying local or just in general, was the benefit of uh, getting the MBA, MBA really worth it? In your interpretation, just the experience of going through an MBA and the associated income improvement, uh, who would you recommend that for? And then are there folks that you would say, mm, maybe think twice about really pursuing that if, if, you're, if they're going to get into one of those professions where you burn out in two years? Even after you burn out in two years of management consulting or investment banking, there are still pretty good careers you can have afterwards. It's not as if you're kind of out of the workforce. Um, but when, when you think about getting your MBA, uh, there's a lot of important things. I, for me, it was a credential. It was education that was very relevant to my job. And it was also, um, it was 
intellectually stimulating. I got a lot out of it that way. But given what you have to pay for those sort of programs versus non-professional masters, where you can often be sponsored by the university, you are making a big financial investment. I think back when I did it in 2001 to 2003, um, my tuition for the program was about 60000 I'm sure given inflation, it's probably doubled. And anytime you're spending that amount of money on yourself, there has to be an economic return. There's no no way not to. So almost every program publishes statistics about here's what the average person coming out of the program makes. Uh, they publish, and and from that you can figure out, okay, I'm making this much. I can probably make this much more. For me, it was about 50% or 60% more from the time I, I went into the program to the time I um, got out and got my next job. And, and the upside of that job was pretty massive, which which also kind of figures into the equation because I was able to last in it for nine years. But you just have to do that math if you're making a $100,000 investment in any education, be it looking at private undergraduate versus public undergraduate or what a scholarship is worth. And you, you just have to kind of crack open the spreadsheet, figure out, okay, here's the delta or here's the difference in income. Here's the difference in tuition. Here's the lost opportunity cost from going away to school for two years. And is the return worth it? given the intellectual stimulation benefits, given the long-term career benefits, uh, given the social network, given all the things that come out of those programs. And and so I I think every situation is unique. Every program, almost every program in their marketing literature lists that information. uh, So you can see, okay, what's the average income of someone coming out of it? And and also don't forget that some of those jobs that are paying at the upper end of the income will be coming with crazy work weeks. So you can't forget and think about it as, okay, I'll be working just as hard as I worked before the MBA afterwards, it's you might have to work twice as hard to make twice as much money, but that's an opportunity you, you can only get via that. Um, I, I mean, I had a lot of friends for whom their income ramp up was so fast after undergraduate, especially folks coming out with technical degrees or engineering degrees, computer science degrees, that there would be no return for them. And then there were others that uh, probably couldn't get into a better program, would have to go to a lower tier program. And the income difference for those might not have been enough to justify it, even though it, it's it's a good education. It's a great, uh, there are a lot of great programs out there. It is a massive investment and you have to, you have to look at it on a on just a return basis. Absolutely. It's definitely wise to enter anything like that with eyes wide open as far as the exact burden that you're getting into. One of the biggest things with undergraduate degrees, not condemning college by any stretch of the imagination, but a lot of freshmen, sophomores don't really even know how much debt they're going to be in when they graduate, how much their yearly tuition's costing. Um, Hopefully with a grad degree, you're a little more mature, have been through the process. You can wrap your mind around exactly what that commitment entails. The next part that we need to break apart is the actual investment strategy. So you've referenced standard uh, rate of return for the market over long periods of time. But just to maybe simplify it a little bit for listeners who aren't as savvy or tend to skew a little younger in the current millennial generation, what was your primary focus with your investments? Were you taking on a lot of risk? Were you in individual stocks? Uh, how, How did that work? And I think anyone who's looked at the market over the last week, uh, and we're recording this late September of uh, 2015, so folks can can go look at this, the the market dropped about 15% over the last month or so. Uh, So it's not as if the market doesn't have any risk. And the whole idea behind investment, or at, at least kind of the modern view of investment, is that there are investments that have virtually no risk, that have a low return, like U.S. Treasuries or savings accounts, where you might get your 1% or 2%. And then there are investments like the stock market that have a much higher return and average. I think the S&P 500 does about 10.5% a year, uh, which is just a broad index for the total stock market. 
smaller capital companies, smaller companies might return about 11%, but they come with even more risk. Uh, somewhere in the middle are bonds uh, that companies issue. Um, and, and without going through kind of a full business primer, basically bonds are less ri- less risky than stocks because companies have to pay them off first with any money they make as opposed to or pay off interest on bonds as opposed to uh, the rest going to shareholders. So you kind of have this broad spectrum of investments. And with higher return investments comes higher risk. But the more time you have, the more time you have to kind of outrun that risk. So um, I don't know if listeners are are super familiar with um, kind of the mathematical notion of standard deviation, but it's a measure of variance. So um, if you have two opportunities, uh, two two investments, one that always returns 2% a year and one that returns an average of 10%, but some years it's 20, some years it's zero, some years it's 30, some years it's minus 10. and, And that's roughly kind of what you'd see out of the stock market. If you have enough time on your hands, then you can invest in something more aggressive like the stock market, uh, because hopefully over time, you will have gotten enough of a a time horizon to outlast those negative swings like the 15% swing we saw now. Or in the middle of uh, when I was planning for retirement in 2007, we saw about a 40% market drop that uh, came back over the next three, four years as well. And so as as long as you have that sort of long horizon, um, you're okay. So for me, given that Retirement was 14, 15 years off to start. My investments were primarily in index funds, and there's whole internet blogs you can read about the value of index investing versus picking stocks versus, and and I'm not going to go into too much of that today, but a a lot of the research has shown that in the long run, you do better with index funds unless you really, really know what you're doing, just because the management fees associated with either transactions or um, stocks isn't enough to kind of offset the, um, the, the cost offset the extra return. But uh, so for me, primarily uh, early on, almost everything that I saved went into small cap index funds. And those got me an average of about 11, 12% a year, which meant that it in the course of about 10 years, whatever I put in there increased by about 150, 160%. Now I had some years where things were up a ton. I had some years where things were down a ton, but because the horizon was long enough off, that wasn't a problem. Um, now that I'm retired, my portfolio is a little bit more concentrated on some real estate investments. And, and, and don't forget, investing for retirement, uh, you don't just have to go with the stock market or go with bonds or go with uh, treasuries. You can buy income-generating properties. They take time, but those can turn a reasonable return as well. Some people like to create small businesses or franchises that they can run on the side it's an, if it's an area that they understand and they, and they know how it works and they know how to invest it, know how to run it and have experience in it. There are all sorts of ways to kind of make money or generate income, be it passive income, active income. But for me, now that I'm retired and I don't need more than about 3% of um, uh, what I've saved to live off of, I've gotten a little bit more conservative in how I'm investing and it's more total market, less small cap and a little bit of real estate on the side. Two big takeaways there, if that kind of flew over your head, be very aware of the fees that you're paying if you're investing. And if you're taking a long-term outlook to your investments, which many of you should be, then the market goes up and down one year. Um, Or there's some swings, it shouldn't really affect you too much because you're staying the course and you have a long-term perspective. And and there's even some studies that um, kind of show a smart investment return is to put roughly your age percent in bonds and the rest in stocks is kind of the, the one of the big rule of thumbs. But I, I'm not a financial, certified financial planner. I'm not a 
I'm not an expert there. I took and passed my uh, CFA level one exam a long time ago, but that's that's more of a, a side credential that just means I understand how some of that stuff works a little better than average. But you can do fine with index funds. And definitely over time, you want to get a little bit more conservative with your investing. Uh, just so when the market drops by 15%, your portfolio only drops by five or 10 Absolutely. If you want more resources on that, you can check episode 24 of the Going Deep with Aaron podcast. We had a chartered financial analyst on the show, so he's more than happy to drop some knowledge there. We're actually going to have another wealth management advisor on uh, towards the end of October. But to now kind of jump into the fun part, yep. you're retired. Yep. We talked about uh, where your investments are right now, but how are you spending your time now that you're not committed to 70 to 80 hours of work per week? That's a great question. Uh, so I just biked here from the Pirate game. Uh, they were up, I think, 6-2 when I left. Hopefully uh, they will have beat the Cardinals. We'll be on the way of beating them again tonight. So I, I've lived in Pittsburgh, I guess, since 95 when I started my undergrad at CMU. And um, even though I sold my house here a year ago, moved down to Florida, got a place on the beach uh, that was a foreclosure, renovated it, have a lot of friends down over the winter, I still spend a lot of time up in Pittsburgh. In fact, I I had pirate season tickets, and I've uh, renewed them throughout the last couple of years, even though I sold my house here two years ago. So I'm traveling up here probably a good 10 times over the summer, going to pirate games, just seeing friends. That's kind of my, my one big summer activity. For the winter, given I'm on the beach in Florida, got a place in Clearwater, I have down probably about 10 to 15 guests every winter, mostly friends, former colleagues, ones who are going through mid-career crises or just friends who want to hang out because it's a nice spot and it's much warmer there than it is up north. And so I'll host them for kind of a week at a time. We'll hang out. That works pretty well. Do a lot of scuba diving. I just got back from a dive trip out to Grand Cayman in Cozumel, Mexico a week and a half ago. Uh, It's another fun hobby. And I think the other big way that I spend a lot of my time uh, is fitness. So when I retired about two and a half years ago, given the 70, 80 hour a week job, given all of the travel that went with it, it was a job that had me getting on planes every Monday morning, living on an expense account, and then um, getting home every Sunday night, sorry, every Friday night around uh, midnight, I think my weight suffered a little bit. And so I ended up uh, putting on about 100 pounds throughout the course of my career. And so uh, by doing that, all of a sudden, I kind of found myself in pretty bad shape. And even though I was working out every once in a while, the, uh, the toll was getting pretty bad. So when it came time to retire, although I initially kind of took it as a six-month leave of absence because my firm didn't want to see me go, I eventually pulled the trigger, retired, and made fitness a huge, huge, huge priority. So every month I run about 150, 160 miles. I'll bike about 500 miles. I'll swim about 10 miles. I'll lift good 10 times. And so I'm in the gym, I'm on my bike, I'm out on the trails, and Pittsburgh has some beautiful ones here with uh, both Shenley Park, Frick Park. I'll be out there, and uh, it's definitely one of my better time sinks where I've kind of able to undo a lot of that damage and take off the 100 or so pounds that accumulated throughout my working career. Gotcha. I want to commend you for that. That's quite an accomplishment to, uh, to lose all that weight and very inspirational. Do you feel like the, you referenced the damage that was done over those years of work do you feel, how close do you feel like you've gotten to recovering from that damage? Do you feel like you'll ever completely eliminate it? Do you ever feel maybe regret or resentment over the damage that was done? Being overweight in and of itself isn't explicitly damaging. It's all the coronary and other problems that kind of come with it. And so I have no idea. I haven't scoped out my arteries to know that I've accumulated this much plaque and by doing this much exercise, it's gotten better or that's 
increased my health risk for these issues or these cancers or these, um, uh, these other risk factors in this way. Uh, so I, I really don't have any idea kind of long-term if there's something explicitly wrong with me or that, that kind of I, I gave my body a little bit more wear than, than I should have. But I, I think given the time frame that it, it was only about a third of my life that I was that much overweight uh, to date, I suspect given that I'm now at a more than healthy weight, I'm doing well and making it on the podium in triathlons and road races and those sorts of things, I, I suspect I'm probably in good shape. I've never been that good of an athlete, even when I was in shape. So I'm pretty happy from a kind of outcome standpoint uh, with how things have been going lately. But, uh, so, uh, but I, I really have no idea if there's what the impact was to say lifespan or, or long-term things. But obviously, I, I mean, you, you know, people who quit smoking, it only takes a couple of years to kind of get most of the benefit, but there's still some long-term lung cancer risk or, but I, as far as I can tell, I, I'm pretty much back to normal, but and it, it wasn't as if being that heavily, I was probably, I maxed out at about 260 pounds. I'm about 160 now. And, and when you're 260 pounds, there, there are some limitations. I mean, especially if you're getting on a plane every week, because you're kind of crunching yourself into that tiny seat next to other people. And probably that wasn't a good thing for the people sitting in the middle of the seat next to me, because I could at least get a window with status on airlines. But, um, it definitely, uh, it definitely um, is much better to be in shape and mobile. And I, I never had any mobility problems. I always worked out. Even when I was weighing that much, I always lifted. But it's definitely much better to be kind of at a healthier weight from a long-term health risk standpoint. So we got to start wrapping up here. I want to be respectful of your time. Make sure you can see the uh, next pirate game here. But uh, before we issue the personal challenge to the audience and tell everyone how to connect with you, if I'm someone sitting there listening saying, damn, it'd be be pretty sweet to retire in my late 30s. And I want to just start trying to acquire some of the knowledge that you've clearly displayed that you've attained over these years. Maybe I I don't know if I can go get an MBA. I don't know if I can do these other things, but I want to get a little bit smarter on investing. I want to get a little bit smarter on saving. Uh, Are there any specific books or resources that come to mind? Sure. There's a really good online discussion board, bogleheads.org that uh, is filled with a lot of kind of folks who advocate for mutual funds. And on those sort of sites, you can learn a lot about uh, basics of investing in terms of how index funds work, how mutual funds work, what the difference is between exchange-traded funds, how to take the most advantage of your retirement-friendly accounts like IRAs, 401ks, all sorts of good online resources for those uh, on those sort of sites, how to create the three-fund portfolio. Uh, those Those are pretty good kind of fundamentals for the investing side. In terms of how to save and how to accumulate a lot, there's a lot of good apps out there. Mint is a great one for tracking budgets. Although for me, really, savings didn't... I never did that much active tracking my budgets. I just forced the savings into a brokerage account. So I had my online brokerage account, opened it up with just one of the big online houses, and uh, just forced every week a certain amount of my paycheck as soon as I got it uh, to come out and go into that, that account. And then in every quarter or so, I just bought an index fund or every couple of weeks or every few months, I just bought an index fund that I liked or occasionally bought a stock I liked. So there wasn't that much kind of education on that front or it wasn't that hard to do the savings. And then from an income standpoint, um, it's not that uh, you definitely have to put in an effort early. And I think for me, given the retirement light at the end of the tunnel, putting in the extra effort into my career early wasn't that hard to do because I knew I was making progress. I knew the number was getting bigger. I knew I was getting closer to that date. 
So when all of a sudden an opportunity came up to try to sell some extra work or an opportunity came up to try to uh, do something extra uh, to help help my career, it was worth making that sacrifice because I knew I wanted to get the, the next 10% promotion or the next raise or the next um, next income increase. Great. If people want to connect with you, maybe ask you questions about anything you talked about today, is there a way to do that? Uh, Twitter, it's just and Alan Charnas. So it's my... Uh, a-L-A-N-C-H-A-R-N-E-S-S. And uh, that's, that's my Twitter handle. You can reach out to me that way. I'm on there every once in a while. Uh, follow me. I'm mostly just pictures at Pirate Games now. But uh, that'll probably shift to Lightning Games as soon as winter starts and then random beach trip pictures. But, and uh, so I'm I, I, somewhat active there. And I have my model, the Excel model that I've shared with most of my colleagues uh, that I've just emailed out to folks uh, that I'm sure I could probably forward on. It does some more advanced simulation, takes into account taxes, looks at some of the what happens to your 401k balance versus your IRA balance or versus your just early retirement balance. And, and, and there's all sorts of kind of little math behind it, but it's not too tricky. Gotcha. All that will be linked to as well uh, on my website, goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast. And to wrap things up, I'm going to give Alan the mic one last time to issue a personal challenge to the audience. Okay. So a little earlier, I talked about how if you save money now, a dollar now, and throw it in the the stock market, on average, in about seven years, it'll be worth twice as much. Or in 14 years, it'll be worth four times as much. So if you think about kind of the dollar you're about, or the three dollars you're about to spend at Starbucks, don't just think about it as three dollars you're about to spend on a coffee today, but think about it as potentially six bucks you can spend in seven years or... 12 bucks in 14 years or in 20 years, it could even be 28 bucks. Uh, and so th- there's kind of this expression, penny wise, pound foolish, but being penny wise isn't that bad of a thing. And I, I talked about earlier, you, you can get there if you, um, if you force the savings, but also you should look at what you're spending today and, and think about those dollars you're about to spend on a vacation today and think about, okay, is it going to be twice as good as a vacation I can have in seven years? Or is it going to be four times as good as a vacation I can have in 14 years? And yeah, at some point you'll be dead and can't spend it. But not spending a lot of the small dollars can really add up to something significant. As they say, five bucks a week turns into 250 bucks a year. Or five dollars a day can turn into fifteen hundred dollars a year. Uh, so it's those little habits, those little spends that kind of get you, or that if you can kind of put them aside and postpone them, they're the ones that'll get you to retirement earlier. So my challenge for for folks out there is to figure out how much money you're spending today that you actually don't need to spend today. And so the challenge is for the next seven days, you can do this via an app like Mint, or you can just write it down in a journal. You should write down what you're spending your money on. Just log it. Just takes a second after you pull out your wallet. Maybe keep a little sheet of paper in there, a mini little golf pencil or something, and just write down everything you're spending your money on and see of that money that you're spending, how much of it is discretionary that you don't need to spend today that you could turn into twice as much in seven years or four times as much in 14 years in the stock market or just by paying off 10% debt or by paying off um, credit cards or, or whatever. And I mean, if you have a high balance credit card, then I mean, 20% interest that doubles in probably four and a half years. So every dollar you don't spend today could be twice as much in four or five years and just write it down and then see at the end how much money you'd have and then see how much money that could turn into in seven years and 14 years and 21 years. And, 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 and from there, figure out a budget. And from there, you can figure out, okay, how much you want to automatically save and put your plan in place. Gotcha. And a really important thing I just want to reiterate is if you set up the savings at the beginning of the month, when the paycheck comes in, the money's already heading out. 
then you really eliminate a headache as far as feeling guilty about a purchase also. If you know you're saving enough for whatever financial goal that you've set up, you really take a lot of the stress out of, well, I, I splurged on that Frappuccino or whatever it may be. Yep. Alan, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I also want to thank Epicast for hosting us today. We just went deep with Alan Charnas and learned a lot about how to retire early. Thank you, Ern. enjoyed that episode with Alan Charnas. Thanks again, Alan, for coming on the show. And thank you to Buzzy and the Epicast Network for providing their hospitality to me. If you enjoyed this episode, please take the time to head over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave us a rating and review. That's really, really helpful, guys. I just received a, another five-star review from G. Levine. If you've already done so, looking for another way to help the show grow, what you can do is if you know someone who is really into tracking their retirements, an aggressive saver, or someone who maybe talks about fantasizing about retiring early, send them this podcast episode, shoot them an email, copy me on it, goingdeeparen at gmail.com, and we'll get a conversation going. Maybe we can help some other people retire before 60. Until next time, thank you so much for listening, everybody. Have a good day.